Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of money? So our position is that we should look at money as a technology, uh, something that has a design and that, uh, like any technology, how you design it influences a great deal of how it works and what it achieves in the world. Right. People talk about money as being all kinds of different things and you know, economists will give you a whole list of things that money has to be. But I think for, for today, we just want to talk about it as a technology, as a design thing. You know, the money that we use now has been around since the Depression and it's a, you know, a fiat money. It's, um, it's designed uh, to be backed by the government and to have value because the government says you have to take it. You have to accept it for your debts. Because at the end of the day, the government will go to war if it needs to. It will go to war, right. It's backed by the power of our government's military. And uh, so that's why it's called a fiat money. And a lot of people have a lot of problems with the money technology that we currently have in the world. So let's talk a little bit about you know the problems that people have. One big problem is transaction costs. If you want to try to get US dollars into another country's money, like euros or yen or something like that, it's uh, costly and it's difficult and the, um, the physical process is somewhat challenging. But I think it's worth pointing out that historically, our current version of money actually does a better job on transaction costs than, say, previous incarnations. That's true. Uh, because it wasn't that long ago in the U.S., I think uh, as recently as the 1800s, that different banks could issue their own banknotes and there were you know, thousands of different currencies and they all had you know, different levels of trustworthiness and values depending on where you were. Right. At that time, the money technology was uh, based on gold. So your money had to be backed by a metal uh, that had like physical value in the world. And so as a result of that, all these different banks would issue paper money backed by the gold that was in their own personal bank vaults, their own local bank vaults. And the further you got away from that bank, obviously the harder it was to trust that uh, you could really get that gold. Right, because the banknote was a promise that if you bring the banknote to the bank, then they'll give you that much gold. Right, but, but if, that's a physical place, and this was not a, a country with good transportation. Yeah, so if the bank that's, you know, wrote the banknote that uh, somebody's trying to give you, let's say you're a bartender and somebody walks in with a weird banknote that you haven't seen before, and that particular bank is two states over, well, you're going to accept that banknote as being worth less money because... For you to actually ever get that gold, you'd have to travel two states to get the money. Right, or pay somebody to travel for you so that that transaction cost, uh, you'd have to build that in. I guess at this time, people used to have like binders or something with values. Well, you can imagine this arising naturally as just a need that, say, merchants would have is that if there's so many different currencies or like thousands of different currencies, then you had uh, a regular publication similar to say like a phone book that would be a reference manual for what the different currencies were and where they were located and what they were supposed to be worth. So again, if somebody comes into your bar with that strange banknote, you would pop open the big binder and flip through it and see what their currency was worth. And obviously that's a huge transaction cost. So yeah, I mean, you can think of all kinds of ways that could go wrong too. That publication goes out of date probably easily. And God, uh, seems like a really clunky system. And so we forget that, uh, you know, back in the old days of, of gold-backed currency, there were still a lot of problems. And uh, in fact, the currency we have now is designed to solve a lot of the worst problems that, um, that those currencies saw. Uh, another problem that, that we have uh, these days is volatile markets, uh, right? We have um, financial crises and recessions and uh, even depressions. There's this boom and bust cycle in business. 
And um, that's something that uh, you know used to be again much worse with older currencies, and it's it's not great now. Uh, and it could arguably be better. We should talk about like why our currency maybe does slightly better in this regard, right? Sure. There's two basic parts of the design of the current currency that that help it do a little better in volatile markets. There's one way that it doesn't clamp down quite as hard on growth as the old system, and there's another way that it uh, can potentially uh, ease up a bit. Um, when uh, growth slows down. Maybe we should define two terms here, which are actually borrowed from the world of sort of virtual currency and and video games, actually. But I find them just a useful way to, since we're thinking about money as a technology with different features, is that money can have what are called uh, faucets and sinks, right? So faucets are ways that the system creates more money, right? That money comes into the system. And uh, sinks are the way that the money gets destroyed or taken out. Right. right. And this all comes from the basic fact, which probably everybody knows, that uh, money derives its value from its scarcity. So if you increase the money supply, you decrease the value of everyone's money. And if you decrease the money supply, the opposite happens. So having sinks and faucets allows you to essentially control the value of all the extant money uh, in the world. Right. And this is a concept that I don't think anybody would have talked about in the days of gold-backed currency. But, you know, the faucet in that case is mining, right? You can go act literally digging right. in the earth for gold. Right. The California gold rush was an example of an accidentally uh, too loose faucet for a short period of time. A bunch right. of people got very rich. And the, you know, sinks, I guess, would just be if the gold was like permanently turned into jewelry and like never turned back or yeah, if it or was just lost. worn off, right? Yeah. Or, or lost. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was serious loss that used to happen of coins just um, getting worn out. Who knows how much gold was on the Titanic when it went down? Yeah, I think somebody probably knows, but yeah. uh, not us. <laughs> but that gold is gone. But anyways, a modern currency, I think, wants to actually embrace the idea that creating and destroying money is part of your currency. I mean, that's, that's a, those, are, uh, those are important levers if you want to try to make the currency work better as a technology. Right. Because what we have to think about is, like, what's the purpose of money? I mean, some people might think that the purpose of money is to just hold its value, but most societies, I think, have decided that the purpose of money is to facilitate commerce. And stability. And right? stability. Right. Well, and stability facilitates commerce. So I think you can actually make that subordinate. Yeah, but like sure. facilitating commerce is like the main thing. So if you want to facilitate commerce, one thing that you really want to do is you want to be able to get more money into the system when there's more demand for it. And uh, our current uh, monetary system does that. It uses a system called fractional reserve banking. That's kind of a boogeyman. People hate it. Um, but it has this one good but it feature. Has, well, yeah. it's, it's designed for a reason, and the reason is, is this very thing. When growth happens, if you have a very um, stable, slow money supply like mining, then you reach a wall where money gets too expensive to borrow for the amount of demand that could actually create economic growth. And this clamps down on the boom and, and ends it too early. So what we can do now... The banks are empowered to create in a sense, a certain amount of money That's right. by uh, loaning out uh, money they don't actually have. Right. They are allowed to m- loan out an additional fraction of the money that they have. So they have to, it has to be in proportion to the money they have, but they're allowed to loan out more uh, than, than they strictly have on file. And what that allows them to do is to create money as debt. So that money gets created and the entity that's asked for the debt is obligated to find that money somewhere in the system and pay it. 
And okay, so the criticism of this, which I understand, is that it's uh, it's inflationary, which it is. It, it acts as a kind of hidden inflationary tax on everyone that's sort of happening all the time. It's a big faucet in a way, like right. I mean, it's it, a big it faucet. Generates a lot of generating a lot of money and and pouring it into the economy, thereby diluting everyone's share. Sure. Uh, and that is true. It does do that. Um, and it's a problem of fiat money uh, that it's subject to theoretically infinite hyperinflation. And if you look at a place like Zimbabwe, where the government is very untrustworthy, uh, you can see examples of hyperinflation. And that's what people worry about when they worry about fractional reserve well, It also banking. makes money for the banks. It's, a, it's somewhat of a transfer of uh, wealth to the banks. It's a payoff to banks, right. So some people who are on the left might hate it for that reason. That's correct. So there is a legitimate concern there that you don't want hyperinflation. You don't want, you know, a dollar that you earn today to be worth a fraction of a dollar tomorrow. But it also is actually a really powerful technology that allows us to make growth faster. Well, because it's kind of a crowdsourced faucet in the sense that it responds to people's demand for loans, right? Right. So the more, that's one yeah. thing that's really interesting about it is fractional reserve banking doesn't require the banks to make the loans. It allows them to. People still have to go to the bank and ask for the loan. Which means that people are trying to start businesses. They're trying to do something with that money, right? right? And then that money appears for them. And so... That is one of the more appealing parts of it. But of course, there are those potential Well, downsides. as long as they're doing something productive, this works really well. Sure. They create new businesses. The businesses create new jobs or new wealth. Either way, everybody's better off. Well, and as long as the bank is but if the ensuring bank, that they're doing something productive, which the bank has to actually right, do a good job of that. If the bank is not well incentivized or if the bank fails to ensure that the loan goes to someone who's going to do something productive, if it's instead goes into uh, you know an unaffordable housing uh, investment, speculative investment or something like that, then you can have problems. And that's, you know, uh, in a nutshell, sort of what happened in our recent financial crisis in this country. Well, because then the banks get bailed out, essentially. Well, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's a whole separate thing. But uh, part of the reason that fractional reserve banking works, right, is because to some extent, the government backs the banks. Because of the FDIC ensuring that that money, you know, that Up to a certain limit, right. people's savings is, are not subject to the bank uh, going under, not so the, since the, the Depression. So the banks protected against some of the, and as well as the consumers, which is the good part of it, are protected against the worst types of bankruptcy. Right, which mostly just means that those consumers then will leave their money in the bank, preventing that type of bankruptcy supposedly from happening. And again, that does work as long as you don't highly financialize a bunch of terrible investments and, uh, uh, you know, get rid of the regulators and uh, allow um, just like a massive feeding frenzy on, on, on that stuff, which has, of course, all been done. Uh, the, another big problem with fiat currency that, um, that can happen, it's happening in Japan right now uh, under Abenomics, is deflation. And uh, what happens there is if uh, prices go up, particularly energy prices, and wages don't go up with them, then you get the consumer class squeezed. They want to consume things and they can't uh, afford them. And that is a, is a vicious cycle that you really want to avoid. So there's a lever in our system uh, that's controlled by the central banks, right? It's controlled by the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who's right now Janet Yellen, um, which is to change interest rates. And this is supposed to give them an additional tool to fight inflation and deflation so that uh, if demand is not driving... Uh, enough liquidity creation uh, through the through the fractional reserve system, right? Well, because the sink is when people pay, uh, you know, off the 
when they pay back when the they loan. pay their debt right people paying debts they pay that debt into the bank and then that money disappears into the system right so in times when people are not taking out loans and they're just actually trying to pay down their debt and get you know back right. to being because stable because they've been squeezed in those times you need to change the interest rates or that's the theory and by changing the interest rates you'll create more demand because people will say well at this interest rate it's such a good deal i should do it so anyway those are the basic problems with our current monetary system we talked about transaction costs volatile markets inflation and deflation those are the the big things that that people worry about i would say that you could maybe see if you agree with this think of in terms of a technology that money is like it's kind of like an operating system maybe for the economy would right you it's agree a platform with that? money is a kind sure. of platform on which commerce occurs. I'd say that. So sure. I think you can argue that our current system is not perfect. It's probably a, a version level improvement over the previous system. Correct. But maybe there's a version level improvement we could make on this. Well, right? One thing that's, I think, important to notice is that these technologies, even our current money technology has been fairly organically developed. It hasn't been developed from the ground up to solve all these problems. It's just sort of been, oh, well, let's try to fix this with some of that. Let's try to fix this with some of that piecemeal over over the years. And I think, you know, recently some software engineers started to think, well, what would a ground up rewrite of currency look like? And of course, we've all heard of Bitcoin. So let's talk about cryptocurrency, which Bitcoin is an example of. Cryptocurrency is a really interesting software concept that's not that old. It's only about five years old. And it's a class of software that creates digital currency in a decentralized network utilizing cryptography. So another way to look at it is it substitutes cryptography for mining. Instead of a gold-backed currency, it's a cryptography-backed currency. Right. So there's gold-backed. There's, again, fiat currency, I would say, is force-backed, basically. It's backed by the, it's, it's backed the rule b- of law. It's backed by the rule of law. And, and ultimately, the, the threat nation. of force, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, uh, cryptocurrency is actually backed by the strength of cryptography that can't be broken easily. Right. Well, without quantum computing, right? Sure. So uh, the current best known cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. Bitcoin came out in 2009. I'm not going to tell you all the things about Bitcoin. You can look it up. But uh, it's gotten a lot of press lately. One thing, or a couple of things that it does is it, it, it actually goes a long way towards solving the problems with transaction costs and inflation. A fundamental des- design of it was to try to avoid, I think, international transaction costs because you can buy and sell things in Bitcoin and you just don't need to do any transferring from dollars to euros. It's a global currency, at um, least in places where governments are, are uh, not it. upset about it. Correct, which is a lot of places, surprisingly. So uh, on that level, it is actually doing, I think, a lot. Uh, the, the transaction costs to actually handle Bitcoin are relatively low compared to uh, transferring between currencies. Another thing, obviously, it's designed to be deflationary. Its st- structure is very similar to gold mining in the sense that it gets harder to do as time goes on and it eventually just stops. There is a limit to how many Bitcoins there will ever be and there's a limit to how far you can subdivide those Bitcoins. And so it is fundamentally deflationary and it was designed to make fractional reserve banking effectively impossible. The people who created it were libertarians who thought that fractional reserve, bank- reserve banking was a you know, hidden tax on everyone that was bad news and was going to lead to hyperinflation. So they made it impossible. It arguably can make worse some of the other problems with our current currency, though. I mean, it's obviously extremely volatile. And the fact that it's not a fiat currency, at least at this time, I think is the biggest reason why uh, it will continue to be volatile. A corollary of the fact that it's deflationary is that it's, as you described, it's fixed, right? Whereas Correct. our Fiat money supply is dynamic. Right, and has these faucets and sinks. And those that dynamism mm-hmm. allows it to 
respond. Now, again, you need good oversight. You need good regulation. You need smart people making the correct decisions at various levels. Right. And you need accountability and hopefully transparency. And those are some right? of the flaws in our current sure. system is that mm -hmm. those things can obviously break down. Yep. But the you have at least the potential in a dynamic system to respond to what the actual situation in the marketplace is. Right. Well, I think there's like an there's an assumption that's made when you assume that fractional reserve banking is bad and that uh, a, a gold-like quote-unquote real money system is better, you make an assumption that economic growth is like a fixed constant. But in fact, economic growth goes in fits and starts and having those levers to create more money and also uh, suck in more money when necessary uh, make the economy work a lot better, which I think people don't realize. Or again, they have the potential to when they well managed. Right, of course. And uh, even when they're poorly managed like they are now, they do a better job than having no levers, I think. Sure, I would but, say so. But obviously, the better you manage them, the better they do. Uh, and they can be managed badly. And so because it's deflationary, obviously, uh, if you had a problem with deflation, Bitcoin would not help you solve that. It's uh, because it has no additional faucets other than its one uh, slowly closing off faucet. Uh, it's very hard to that problem with Bitcoin. Right. Now, our current system rewards, as we alluded to earlier, banks, which is a problem people might have with it. It also does re reward in boom times uh, people who need money, which is, of course, one of the better features of it. But uh, Bitcoin, it's interesting to talk about who does Bitcoin reward, right? Which right. you already alluded to early adopters, I think, or you mentioned that. Right. Well, it'll massively reward early adopters just by its very nature because uh, it was so much easier to mine Bitcoins in the beginning. Uh, than it is now or will be in the future. The faster you get in on Bitcoins, like the earlier you adopt it. And again, a lot of the Bitcoins are already owned. So in a way that it's too late to even get in on that game. So uh, that might have helped get the currency started because again, incentivizing early adopters is sometimes a feature of technologies since if you want the technology to take off. Right. Well, and obviously a money supply almost by definition is a technology that needs that network effect of lots of users before it becomes even usable at all. Right, right. So so that's, I guess, good. But then, you know, the concern is that uh, who are the people who joined in early and have all the Bitcoins? And then the other people that it helps are people who can mine the Bitcoins, right? Which is a really computationally intense task. Right. At this point, uh, it wasn't when it first started up, but at this point it requires a lot of specialized hardware. Right. Um. So, yeah, it definitely benefits people who have access to that um, application-specific hardware. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's worth thinking, will Bitcoin be able to hold up in the future uh, because of the reality that, A, uh, it's deflationary and it's not going to be able to respond well to boom and bust cycles. Uh, and B, you know, it does so much, so massively reward these early adopters and technological elite. Are people going to want to participate in a system that uh, that does those things. The conventional wisdom is that uh, you will always have more economic growth in the future than in the past, right? That economic growth just always gets more and faster on the on the you know zoomed out scale. Right. We have and more people with more technology more doing more, more things and, and have more time on their hands. So it's possible that a gold type money supply like Bitcoin would be disastrous for a world like that, where. Uh, we'd need more and more liquid money each year, but instead our money be getting less and less liquid. That's one way that uh, things could go uh, if Bitcoin were to be massively adopted uh, and we were to still have, you know, a lot of faster and more economic growth. But I want to kind of posit the opposite. I want to say, like, maybe that conventional wisdom about economic growth isn't right. What's interesting about right now is that we're all seeing this phenomenon of 
uh, tremendous value being created, uh, sort of in the colloquial sense, and that it's good for your life, right? And that it's a form of growth in that way. That right, we're, cultural value. But right. then that isn't really translating into revenue, right? Right, economic value. And a lot of that has to do with digital goods, right? Things like files that can be you know, tremendously valuable in terms of the information that's inside of them, but copying them and shooting them around the world in seconds is almost free. And so potentially this causes a decoupling between the type of progress that I think is, we're undoubtedly going to see the growth of our technology and right. the growth of the, the we're our capabilities. We're not doubting that our lives are going to get better right. as a result of technological change in the future. We're just not 100% sure that that's going to translate into GDP growth in the way that it has recently and in the past. Because some of that growth may not be monetizable, right? Correct. Because as we've said It'll many exist times- exist in this sharing economy as digital information or as something that can easily be printed out at home or something Something like that's that. abundant and not scarce. And as we, again, as we've said many times on the podcast, if you want to monetize something, it's got to have some scarcity attached to it. And so- if we actually have less scarcity, then maybe you have less need for money. I think it's sort of where we're going with this, right? Right. Well, so it's possible that as the monetizable part of the world shrinks, the things that are still remaining scarce, things which like land about, and attention, et cetera. Right. That those things might transition over to being handled by a digital uh, cryptocurrency uh, and that that cryptocurrency, if it manages to shrink at roughly the right rate, or not shrink, but uh, slow down in growth at, r at roughly the right rate, might actually end up with an economy that is smaller than today's economy, being you know using a currency that's smaller than today's currency, and it might all just work out. Um, but I'm I'm reluctant to assume that because it sounds like complicated math. <laughs> um, I mean, not I'm in no way an expert on this, but. Uh, you know, in order for the money technology that ends up getting used to represent the right amount of scarcity, it seems like it would have to have some of that flexibility in, in terms of uh, sinks and faucets. A way to make this, I think, maybe more concrete is that one version of the future might be that the like so many things are essentially free of charge, right? Again, this is the really far future where you have you know, matter printers that can create physical objects uh, in your home by just, you know, feeding them garbage and then they, you know, print out what you need and this like really extreme level of technology where we have a lot of abundance, right? And a lot of people can live and get the things that they need so cheaply that it, they're virtually free, right? In, in a future like that, it's possible that money is really used for a lot less things, right? Because if you, you can right. get your food without your money, you can get your maybe even your transportation without money, you can get a lot of your entertainment without money. And so then money becomes a way that, you know, rich people, you know, buy and sell land and... Uh, you know, trade in the things that are still valuable. Right. The few things that still need to be made in clean rooms, like, you know, the people who own those clean rooms trade those things with money or something. But like the vast majority of things would just be outside the monetary system in that case and would be in this, um, you know, digital sharing economy. And then that instead. would be less demand for money, right? Because if a lot of us Maybe. are essentially outside of the money economy, right? right. Um, and only, you know, the wealthy elites that are buying and selling, you know, things at the level of land need money. Then. Right, and it might actually make perfect sense to have a deflationary currency in that world. So that's that's something I think is really interesting as far as that's a very far future prediction. I think in the meantime, well, there's still going to be a lot of economic growth and a lot of innovation, but it won't necessarily be clear which innovations are going to cause the economic growth because a lot of the innovations are just going to make people's lives better without increasing you know, monetization. It might be better to have a system 
where we can respond more dynamically to uh, the needs of the moment. You know, a uh, software technology might come out in the next five or 10 years that makes a lot of people a lot of money. Right. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we that's, need... That's definitely yeah. possible. It's not within, you know, that's within the realm of possibility, although it may not happen. So it's, I think it's good to have a money that we can both um, devalue at will and, and ratchet down on at will uh, so that uh, we can encourage risk when we need to and also uh, the opposite. But I would modify that slightly. I'd say cool it's, it, it's important that we ha- maybe, if we don't know what the future is like and what economic growth is like, I'd say it's important that we have a dynamic money supply. Now, uh, right. that doesn't, well, but see, that doesn't actually have to be uh, some sort of top-down intervention where you have a Federal Reserve that's, oh, that's calling correct. the shots. It doesn't have to be fiat money necessarily. It doesn't have to be um, uh, done by the Central Reserve. It could be something that's programmed into the design of the money, for example. You could have an algorithm that was transparent and open source that everybody understood how it worked but that dynamically changed the amount of money to try to match whatever was going on in the economy in order to benefit everybody. Right. And there are actually a couple of things uh, that are trying to do this. So this brings me into the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, which uh, is that uh, one of the great things about Bitcoin is that it's an open source protocol. So uh, several people who have problems with its design have taken it and based new uh, coins on it. And I want to talk about a few of these, one of which is Litecoin, which uh, uh, you pointed me out to the other day. And that one uh, modifies the uh, Bitcoin protocol to be easier to mine. So that's the main thing that they do. So you can use off-the-shelf consumer hardware. I could use my little laptop that I'm sitting here looking at right now to mine Litecoins. It democratizes the mining process so more people have access to that faucet of new money. And it's less restrictive in that only rewarding people with uh, massive specially designed hardware. Right. So it's basically just doubling down on the rewarding of early adopters strategy and getting rid of that other strategy of rewarding sort of elite people in in computing centers. But it also is operating as a kind of sort of GBI. If if Litecoin were to get adopted, uh, almost anybody could earn themselves some Litecoins. Well, Well, GBI meaning guaranteed basic income. Right. Which Sorry. we've talked about in the past in the podcast. Yes. Correct. But it could be a, a potential... And it's a, that, it's yeah. a kind of way of sort of uh, giving people money. Uh, in, in a, it's so somewhat similar to a basic income, although well, it's, not, it's not exactly the same. Because as we talked about in the last episode, most people have access to some computation It's right. at this point. Right. And it's, yeah, I mean, you could even mine Litecoins at the library, I feel like. It seems like it's a very low computation task. And then the next one, which is a system I like even better, is one from uh, Europe, which is called Frycoin. And Frycoin is based on the concept of Freigeld. And so what it does is it has demurrage built in to the system. So demurrage is a fee for holding money. And if you have Frycoin and you don't invest it or spend it, it will lose some of its value. So that's a sink that's built into Frycoin that is meant to incentivize people doing productive things with their money and not holding it, not hoarding it. This kind of expiration date strategy it's pretty interesting. is really interesting to me. Uh, theoretically, I think this has a lot of possibility to be the right back end to a fractional reserves type system so that, yes, you do have increasing money supply to uh, dynamically go with dy- demand, but if banks or institutions or individual rich people don't take that money and put it into a useful cause of some kind in the economy, 
they lose some of it. Now, I do have to inject some uh, cynicism here. Sure. Which is that uh, just like the rich find ways to evade taxes, they will find ways to make their money seem like it's working in order to bypass the expiration date while it's not actually going anywhere. Well, and even seeming like it's working, though by putting it in some sort of shell corporation or something, still circulates the money and still engenders fees and some leakage of the money back into the society. So I still think that's a net improvement. I'm just saying you could but have yeah. it in kind of a false circle where it's like moving obviously, through accounts, but uh, it just all really is controlled by... Obviously, no ideology is uh, you know free of uh, the possibility for corruption. What's cool about the Frycoin is that um, it can't be tricked, actually, because uh, it's built into the currency and it, the, the fee is only for holding the money. It's not for... I mean, investing it in a shell corporation, I think, counts, you know? So that's not, you don't have to trick it. But what if you give it to someone else to hold and they give it to someone else to hold and you've got all that worked out and then eventually comes back to you? Right. I guess you could just have a transaction ring where you all sort of agree to, to pay each other. Exactly. It depends um, how the currency I don't is, know how it handles that. is actually checking for cheaters. Again, this is very similar in a way to designing an effective game so that nobody can cheat. And this is also a problem where if you don't have, if the system isn't somewhat dynamic and you can't adapt, then however you design it, you run the risk that there's some way to game the system that you didn't anticipate. Right, right. And, and now all these systems have right got some kind of flaw, I'm sure. Um, but I think it's a really interesting idea if you can implement it, uh, the idea of a, a expiration date or a, or a tax on holding money. Um, and then a third uh, cryptocurrency that's uh, out there that's really aiming to solve the transaction cost thing once and for all is this Ripple, which is a currency that's sort of like trying to just be a middleman currency that you put your money in in between it being two other currencies. Those are those are some some other cryptocurrencies that are out there. They're trying to solve some of these problems. You know, the big question with these is why they're is will they catch on? And if they don't catch on, obviously they're not of value. One idea that's floating around the internet that I actually wrote up a blog post recently on our blog, uh, Decline of Scarcity, is could you somehow tie a digital currency and possibly a cryptocurrency, although I don't know if you could port the current software to actually achieve this, where the primary faucet is not some kind of mining uh, process. It's actually a basic income directly. So in other words, if you are in the system and you have a wallet, uh, that wallet automatically generates a certain amount of money, uh, say every month. That's roughly equal to what a basic living expense might be. And so then the system has a sort of dynamic faucet that's creating money equal to the number of people using the currency uh, and that's going directly in a democratized fashion out to everybody, right? And it's not being created in one location. So that's an idea, although again, how would you execute that is kind of beyond... Uh, this right. discussion because there's a lot of challenges there in terms of authenticating who the person is. Right. So the that, biggest challenge is making sure that every person has one wallet and not more than one. Right. Wallet, right. So that's just an idea. That's sort of a uh, not fully fleshed out one, but it would be. We talked a lot about basic income. We think it's a good idea, and if you could mash that up with the design of your actual currency, I think that's potentially a fruitful direction to explore. Right. Mainly because that would not require a government to implement the policy. If uh, if you just could get a currency adopted that uh, that did that. And I think at this point, we should maybe mention like a kind of big elf in the room with this discussion. And whenever we're talking about monetary policy, I think this stuff's always pretty speculative because the rich, I mean, it's just, we should just say this. I mean, the rich 
people, the people who have a lot of fiat currency, are not going to allow their position to be eroded very far. So any monetary system that uh, replaces the current monetary system is going to have to benefit the currently rich. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, that may sound really cynical, but I think that's just realism. Well, one way to put this is that monetary experimentation will only be permitted insofar as, you know, the people with the bulk of the power allow it to continue. Correct. Um, and that's the fiat and fiat currency. They will go to war to stop currencies that are too challenging to their power. Now, the more decentralized your currency technology, maybe the harder it is for them to crack down. So there is that possibility. But as long as, you know, they have a monopoly on force, uh, they will, they can still make that very difficult for you, even if you have a really robust decentralized technology. Right. So there are kind of, you know, there are probably utopian systems that would involve a more aggressive redesign of money that John and I might prefer personally uh, to to what we have now, but that we didn't talk about here because I feel like we, we should talk about things that have a chance of happening. The thing that's cool about cryptocurrency is that it is decentralized and it can't be stopped in that sense. Uh, although obviously co- uh, countries could ban it and things like that, which would be a big problem for it. Well, and if you can um, build something into the currency that pleases uh, wealthy people enough, then they'll maybe allow it to happen. Right. Uh, so, like, what's an acceptable uh, compromise there? And I've heard the argument that the reason that, say, Bitcoin is allowed to continue is because Bitcoin creates, as part of its design, a record of all transactions that have ever occurred with Bitcoins, which is the blockchain. Right. And uh, that actually is a great supply of information, potentially, for uh, governments that want to try to comb through that and deduce who is spending money where. One feature of Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies out there are designed to try to fix this too. I didn't get into this because it's not my personal issue, but um, one feature of Bitcoin is that it it uses pseudonyms. Sure. It's not anonymous. So as long as you are careful with your identities and and don't allow them to be too easily tracked to you, you know, your pseudonyms, then you can use... Bitcoin with some anonymity, but, they still but it's see, not yeah. anonymized. It actually does record every transaction and carry it with it. And with sufficient computing power, which may not exist today, but will exist eventually, um, you could really comb that thing and uh, comb other public records and just sort of figure out who everybody is in, in the Bitcoin blockchain. It's a, well, it's just saying that this wallet paid this wallet with on this date, right? Correct. And it doesn't tell you whose wallet it is, but you could figure it but out. But you could, if you figured out what some of the wallets were and you had some transaction records from some websites or something, you could probably figure a lot of it out. That's something that, uh, you know, some people would prefer a fully anonymous uh, currency. I think power structures would probably prefer a fully non-anonymous currency. So that's, that's one place where perhaps, uh, you know, you could appease the rich by giving up some privacy and uh, maybe get some transparency in return. Because I think one of the big problems with, you know, the current uh, monetary system is it's very opaque and you don't know what the Fed governors are doing, et cetera, et cetera. So um, having a more transparent system uh, would potentially be good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, after this discussion, obviously there's a lot of questions here and we're not monetary experts at all, but um, it does seem that there's a possibility to create decentralized cryptocurrency platforms uh, that might do a better job than our current technology of providing liquidity to people who need it and also uh, providing a way to make bus uh, less bad, to give us uh, 
you know, some flexibility because we don't know what the levels of economic growth are going to be in the future, but we do know that a lot of value is going to get created and that we're going to want to have a, a system where we can make a lot of small bets and make a, take a lot of small risks. So I think we could design a system that would have uh, faucets and sinks and that would have trust and transparency that could provide all those things. Yeah, I mean, money, if you think of it as a technology, it's time to probably start thinking about a new version of it. And we don't think the way forward is to go back to an old version like gold. We think, you know, there's some new version that takes advantage of, of the new technologies that we have that hopefully uh, fixes some of the problems and uh, maybe, you know, pleases the rich as well as the poor. So right. That well, if you can design something that pleases the rich enough, maybe you can get it adopted as a fiat currency, which will solve your adoption problem. And everybody benefits and, from stability in a currency, really, in a way. So, I right. mean, I think there's room to improve even just on that front. So Absolutely. All right. Well, so thanks for listening. Uh, please leave us a comment and tell us, you know, all the various things you think we're wrong about. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.